0: Ephesians chapter 6 and so we we have just kind of started this mini-series on the idea of spiritual warfare And so let me just kind of catch us up from last week I want to start in some of the same places and and last week we started in second kings Chapter 6 for those of you who were here last week not first but second kings And so we looked at this story of elisha. And so if you remember this here was the, the context and the, the scenario um, he he and his servant are in a town, an entire army has come to kill Elisha. In the middle of all that, the servant wakes up and, and he is in a panic. He, I mean, he has officially pushed the panic button. He, he wakes Elisha up and he says, we're done. I mean, this is over. We, there's an army here for, I mean, for us. Okay. So Elisha makes this, this awkward comment back and he said, uh, Hey, there's, there's more with us than with them. Now put yourself in the shoes of the servant, right? One, two, a lot of it. It This doesn't make sense. And so um, in that moment, Elisha prays, God, open his eyes. And in that moment, God gives him a glimpse behind the curtain of what he can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear. And so all of a sudden, for the first time, this servant realizes that there is more to life than what he can sense. There, there is something behind, like his senses are deficient to discern all there is to reality. And so he, his eyes are opened and he sees this incredible army of angels that have, that have surrounded Elisha and himself and are about to wage war on this army that surrounded the city. And so we talked about last week how they, there's a real spiritual world out there, right? I mean, our, our kind of modernistic world looks at that and thinks crazy, I mean, but but the Bible clearly teaches this, that there is such a thing as a spiritual world. Okay, now we press that a little bit further, and we also said that there's not just a world that's out there that's beyond our senses, but there is a spiritual war going on. So there is a real conflict. That that there is a conflict that is happening right now. And so we put it in the context of Ephesians. And so we, we just asked the question last week. If all this stuff that we're talking about in Ephesians, it lays a beautiful picture, right? I mean, so if you've been with us, you've seen that the first three chapters, they talk about what we have and what we are in the gospel. Then chapter four starts, it starts talking about how these things that we are and these things that we have in the gospel, how those things begin to work themselves out of our lives. So in chapter four, we see it working out into kindness. Can we all agree that there's times that it's hard to be kind, right? I mean, there's just times that's difficult, right? Okay. So, so it starts to work itself out in not stealing, but doing honest work with our own hands. It starts to work itself out in being a righteous anger. This God-centered anger and not a fleshly anger. It starts to work itself out in sexual purity, Ephesians chapter 5. It starts to work itself out, how about this one, in marriage. That, ladies, it creates in you a joyful willingness to follow the lead of the one God has placed in authority over you. And for our men, that it creates in you a lay down your life and love your wife as Christ loved the church. In our parenting, that that we display and we show... I mean, parents, it's saying that we show our kids what God is like in the way we parent. This is God's design for parenting. That that, that kids are going to joyfully obey and honor their parents. And all the parents said, I wish that were true, right? I mean, those things are hard. And why are they hard? That's the question. Like, why is that? And Paul's response is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Right when you come out of that, this is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Paul's response... Why is that hard? Because there is a real devil waging a real war against real people, making it really, 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 really difficult to live out the gospel. That's why it's hard. Okay, now now let me emphasize two things here. When we talk spiritual warfare, the emphasis is spiritual, not physical, right? So this is not a call to, to pick up your arms and go to war somewhere. That is not the issue. It's a spiritual war. Okay, so you got this implication here. Okay, now the second thing is, is that Ephesians, and this is important for you to grab this and make sure this is emphasized in your heart when you think of this passage. that This places spiritual warfare in the realm of your daily grind. That is the context of spiritual warfare. Everybody, when you talk spiritual warfare, people get crazy right? I mean, they, they instantly gravitate to these extraordinary and extreme cases of stuff. And, and there are those. There's no doubt. When you read the New Testament, there are those. But the context of spiritual warfare in Ephesians is, you wake up tomorrow, it's hard to live the gospel. If you're a parent and your son backtalks you, there, there's something in you that just swells up, isn't there? I mean, y'all know that feeling, right? Okay, so, so it's saying that these things in the daily grind, when you leave today and you try to love your wife, honor your husband, that these things are hard. So there's a real conflict going on. Okay, now we also talked about, that, kind of press a little bit deeper here, that this conflict is the clashing of two kingdoms. You've got the, the expanding and growing in this unseen kingdom of God that's colliding into and crushing this unseen and crumbling kingdom of Satan. Now, now here's the reality for every one of you in this room. That, that conflict, the clashing of these two kingdoms, you live in the friction zone. Where these two things are colliding, that's where you live. Where all that friction is created, this is where you do life. And so here's what that makes this. That makes this conflict personal. It makes it inevitable. Like if you look at Ephesians 6.12, it says these two words are going to be paired together. We and wrestle. So that means that you and I Everybody, all of us in this thing, we are all in a wrestling match. We are all in the struggle. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. You cannot get around it. Okay, now that's what led um, John Piper to say this, kind of commenting on this passage. This idea that when you are born into the womb, when you exit your mom's womb, you are welcomed into war. Okay, this is the idea in Ephesians 6. Okay, so This is what Piper says, kind of commenting on this. He says, from the cradle to the grave, life is war. Your soul, your mind, your body, your family, your career are all filled of conflict. Until Satan is finally thrown into the lake of fire, our peace with God will have to be a vigilant peace. Satan will certainly give no peace if we are at peace with God. This is the idea. It's inevitable. This is what you are born into. And let me just remind you that the stakes in this war, the consequences, are eternal. The destinies of mamas and daddies, grandmas and grandpas of little boys and little girls all hinge on this war. Okay, now when you read Ephesians six, here's what here's what I think happens to us. I mean, it's it's a summons, it's it's a call to action, right? I mean, you read this and it produces something inside of you, right? Okay, so this is where like Martin Lloyd Jones, this is gonna be up on the screen for you, commenting on this passage and how it's got this it's got this motivating and this stirring effect in your soul when you read it. It should, right? He, he says this about this passage. This is a, Ephesians six. Okay, this is a stirring call to battle, he says. Do you not hear the bugle? Do you not hear the trumpet? We are being roused. We are being stimulated. We are being set on our feet and readied for war. That's the imagery of Ephesians chapter 6. It is this call for courageous battle, to set up resistance, to wage warfare, and to stand. This is, this is the summons. This is the tone. This is the feel. Okay, now this is where it gets dangerous though. If you're like me and you like Braveheart... This is what happens when I read this. Give me some blue face paint, a a nice Scottish kilt, a big sword, and let's do this thing, right? I mean, this is what happens in me. Okay, now let me just make this comment. That is a good way to get killed. That's what that is, right? So so we need to be real careful in this. Okay, so there, there is a reason why coaches study film. Wouldn't we agree? You don't just send your kids out to play foot without studying film, studying your opponent, what they're good at, what their weaknesses are, how they scheme, what they look like. Okay, you you, you watch film for a reason. How many of you have watched the uh, the, the movie Patton? It, it came on TV. Uh, yeah, nobody. Okay, I'm the only one. Great. Um, Okay, so so it came on TV. I watched half of it the other day. Okay, now, now there's this <laughs> there's this funny part right at the beginning. He, okay, Patton is this um, kind of a controversial figure, Allied General, um, World War II. Okay, so it kind of chronicles his story through the war. And there's this point in the beginning of the movie where he is in North Africa with his little, you know, his army station ready to rock and roll. And then you've got Rommel. Okay, he's, he's the German, kind of this decorated uh, military leader in Germany. And and all of a sudden, Patton is sleeping. He gets intelligence. Their little guys get intelligence that Rommel is on his way and kingdoms are about to collide right here. Okay, so so Patton wakes up. They wake him up from the sleep. He gets dressed. He's ready for war. And as he's getting out of bed, it scans over to his nightstand. And you see this book. It's called something like, um, I think it's like the tank in attack or something like that. Then it scans down to the author. Rommel is the author. Remember that? Okay, so then the, then the next scene is it goes out to the battle. And so here comes Rommel, here comes Patton. They've got their forces kind of set up, ready to go. And they just destroy Rommel. Okay, now in the midst of the carnage, it, it scans back to Patton. And then this is what happens. Kind of this loud, boisterous, I just killed you type of a voice. He says, Rommel, I read your book. Now remember that? Doesn't it make sense to read the book of the guy you're fighting I mean, doesn't that just make sense? If you're going to fight them, wouldn't it make sense to know their tendency on 4th and 2? I mean, wouldn't it make sense to know what you're dealing with? Okay, now this is the idea when you get to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, and he's going to say, listen, you need to put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, it clearly says there are schemes of the devil. That he has got plots and plans, a way of working, a way of plotting destruction, right? To defame the glory of God and destroy the people of God. He's out for that. Okay, now here's the implication of that. That you would be a fool not to think about what these plots and plans are before you grab your big sword and your you know your Scottish kilt and you go to battle, right? You'd be a fool to do that. Okay, so here, here's my goal for the morning. It's to take a step back and to broaden our view of the war. To help us see, okay, now listen to statement To help us see that we are fighting a war on multiple fronts. Okay, so we're fighting a war on three fronts, as a matter of fact. Three, right? And so this is not a, okay, things get simple when you can say this. When you can say, there's the enemy, get a big gun and shoot him. I like that kind of a war, right? Our guns are bigger, so let's shoot him and this is over. Things get a little more complicated when it looks like this. There's 13 enemies all around us. They all look different, fight different. I mean, they're all different. And I don't even know what to shoot at them. I, I have no, I, so you're you're planning this war on multiple fronts. And this is the idea with the Christian life. is It's not a single front war. It's a multiple front war. Okay, now you see this in several places in the scripture. But let me take you to one. Back up to Ephesians chapter 2. And let, let me show you one place where it talks about how, how we've got this war on multiple fronts. Ephesians chapter 2. starts out and says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following, listen to this, following the course of this world. So there is a front that is outward called the world. Okay, so this is going to be one of our fronts. There's a front that is outside of us that is waging war on us. The world. Okay, we're following the course of this world. Look at the next phrase. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's a direct allusion to the devil, the Satan. So so there's also an upward front to the war. That that we have a real enemy called the devil who is waging war on us. Okay, and then look at the last part here. And look at what the devil's doing first. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he is at work in people, in the world. Okay, and look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Another front of the war, the flesh. It's this internal reality, this internal issue that is waging war. These demented and deformed and distorted desires that are waging war inside of us right? Okay, so you've got the passions of the flesh. Look at what it says we're doing with the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's what he's saying. You've got three fronts. You don't have one enemy. You've got three enemies. You, you've got this internal issue called the flesh that is waging war against you. You've got this outward enemy called the world that is waging war against you. And you've got this upward enemy called the devil that is waging war against you. Okay, so here's the goal of the morning. I want to define and describe each one of these. And then at the end, I want to try to tie them together so you can see how these things work in concert to plot your demise. Okay. So that, that's the goal. So we'll take front one. Front one is the flesh. Okay. So this is going to be the internal issue the the flesh Okay, so, so we'll work towards a definition here. When we're thinking the flesh, I, when you think of the flesh in the Bible, it can mean several different things, just depending on the context of it. Sometimes when you see the word flesh, it means like a human being. Like Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's saying that we're not wrestling against people. We're, we're not wrestling against flesh. Like you, me, It's not it's not on this realm. Okay, so sometimes it means human beings. Sometimes it would mean like the skin that wraps up your body. Right, So that can also mean flesh. Okay, but when it's used in a negative sense, it has this idea of the inner deformed inclinations of your heart. This is the flesh. Let me give you a definition here. The flesh is your inner desires that have been deformed and distorted by sin. This is the idea of the flesh. It's this internal issue that has been deformed. These desires that have been deformed and distorted into things that run contrary to the will of God, that would lead you away from God. Clinton Arnold, he's written extensively, does a lot of theological kind of heavy lifting when it comes to spiritual warfare. He says this about the flesh. He says it's the inner propensity to do evil. This is the flesh. So in in Ephesians chapter two, when it says that that you were living in your flesh, the passions of your flesh, carrying out the, the desires of the body and of the mind, he's talking about these inner inclinations toward evil, right? So it's the thing that you're born with. You're dead in your trespasses. When you are born into the world, you've got a natural resistance, a natural rebellion against God. This is why when you think of babies, babies don't come out morally neutral, You do not have to teach a two-year-old how to lie. They come by that honestly, right? You you don't have to teach them how to say mine. You don't have to teach them to cry when they don't get their way, right? All that stuff is, I mean, it's just a thing in us. It's the flesh. It's these inner inclinations that we are born with that have been deformed and, and lead us away from God. I like how one pastor put it. He said, the flesh is that part of you, the inside part of you that is at war with God. This is what the flesh is, that inner part of you that shakes a rebellious fist at God and said, you want a tango, let's do it. This is the flesh. Okay, now let, let's kind of widen the scope here to make sure we're getting a biblical kind of idea of how this works itself out. In Genesis 1, the Bible says that God created all things and they were good. So here's what that means. When, when you get to Genesis chapter 1, there is alcohol, but there's no alcoholics. There's food, but there's no gluttons, right? There's rest, but there's not sloth. There's friendship, but there's no foes. There's, okay, listen to this. There's desires, but they're not distorted. Okay, now in Genesis chapter three, a catastrophic event happens. When Adam and Eve sinned, it put sin, it introduced sin into the, into the world. And at that moment, okay, now listen to this. At that moment, desires went wayward. Desires were deformed and were distorted. That they were they were bent away from God. Okay, this is what happened at the fall. Okay, now this is why when you start reading forward in the scriptures, like you take Noah, right? Okay, so when you're introduced to Noah, he's a blameless man, he's upright, he's righteous. Two chapters later, he he's naked in his tent, passed out drunk. The issue is not alcohol. The issue is, is Noah had a deformed desire toward alcohol. Right? Okay, so if you think of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, the issue is not, um, the issue is not a friendship. The issue is Cain had a distorted want and a distorted desire for approval, like this jealous temperament now. And so he kills his brother. Okay, you think Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, so they turn sex into a cesspool, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so you've got sex that turns into exploits and abuse. The issue is not sex. The issue is a deformed and distorted desire for it. Okay, this is what the fall does. Okay, now think about this. The fall, when sin was introduced into the world, here's what happened. The scope of the effects of that were universal. And the the scope of this, it reaches everywhere. Okay, so when you think about the universal piece of that, that that it's universal, it affects all people, and the effects of the fall are are far-reaching. They reach every part of you and I. Every part. Okay, this is what theologians would call total depravity. Here's what that means. It means that sin has affected every single part of you your desires, the way you think, when, when you just have a reflex with something, like something happens and the reflex of your heart is bent away from God. It, okay, now total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. I One theologian, he always um, would say that you always have room for deprovement, right? So it's not saying that you're as bad as you could be. It's just saying that sin has reached every part of you, that, that every ounce of you has been affected by sin. Okay, so this is this is the flesh. Okay, now here's the great news of the gospel. The gospel comes in and dethrones the flesh in our life. I mean, this is the beauty. Now think about this with me. That you are born, that the, the effects of the fall have reached into your heart, affected every part of you. And then the gospel starts to come and undo what sin has done. I, this is the gospel. This is why when you think of Ephesians chapter 2, here's what it says. You're living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Okay, so this is where you're living. And then when you get to verse four of Ephesians chapter two, it says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves you makes you alive. Okay, now now think about this. Here's what it's saying. That, that when you are saved, when God saves you, he does a radical miracle in your heart where he rebends those distorted desires and lines them up with him again. This is the gospel. Okay, this is why when John Piper's describing conversion, let me read this quote to you. Here's how he describes it. He says this about it. Conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties. New delights, not just new deeds. New treasures, not just new tasks. And what he's saying is that a Christian is not primarily defined by what he does. What makes a person a Christian is what has been done to him internally. This is what makes you a Christian. So if you're a Christian, then, then 2 Corinthians 5 has happened to you. God has come in and he has, I mean, totally abolished this old you. And he has set up a new, you. he's recreated, rebent those desires. The old gone, the new has come. This is what it means to be a Christian. That the inside of you has been radically re-altered around new wants, new desires. You've been given new taste buds, new appetites. Okay, so, so every Christian could say this. Every Christian, this would be true of. The dominant desire in your heart, if you're a Christian, is for God. This is the dominant desire. Even when you sin, it's still the dominant desire is for God. Okay, so th- This is what a Christian is. You've been remade. You've been renewed on the inside. Okay, now, now this begs the question. Well, why is it that we still sin, right? So if we've been made new, we've been re-bent. Okay, all those words sound good. But, but why is it that we still sin? And this is why your typical testimony drives me crazy. If, if you were to just listen to the typical testimony that would make it to a public stage to tell you about it, here's what it typically sounds like. I was so deep in this sin I could barely breathe, right? I mean, I, I was so deep that I, I didn't see any way out and God saved me, right? I mean, God did this radical work. I mean, he... he busted me out. I mean, he, he did all this stuff, right? Okay. And then I got baptized. I came up out of the water and it's like, I'm instantly quoting half of Romans eight, right? I mean, the Bible is just kind of downloaded into my brain. It's not that I just don't pick up the bottle. It's, I don't want the bottle, right? I mean, it's not that just, I don't struggle with pornography anymore. I mean, that was something that two days into my Christian life, one memory verse I was good to go with, right? I mean, this is what they sound like. I just want to put this little disclaimer at the bottom of the screen. This guy is lying, right? It, it just doesn't work that way. That is not the Christian life. That's not what it looks like. Okay, now think about this. When God saves you, He doesn't, He doesn't take you from the conflict. He puts you on the winning side of the conflict. Okay, so you've been given these new desires, but, but you're still, you've got these pockets of resistance, and here's the reason. Why, why is it that we're still at war here? It's because although these desires have been dethroned in you, they are not destroyed in you. Okay, this is the idea. Okay, now Jerry Bridges, he he wrote this book called The Pursuit of Holiness. He gives, I think, a really helpful illustration to kind of make this make sense. He says, picture your soul, kind of your heart, as a territory. Okay, so picture your heart as a territory, like you're a, a land, you're a nation. When you are apart from Christ, before you're saved... That The occupying government, the ruling government in your heart, in your territory, is sin. It's flesh. You're living in the desires of, of, of the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Th- this, is, this is the reigning, the occupying landlord. Th- this is the master of the territory. Okay, now when you become a Christian, here's what happens. God comes in, goes behind enemy lines, dethrones the flesh, and sets up a new occupying government in the territory. And so you've got now a new master. You've got a new governing authority over the territory, over your heart. This is the picture of what it means to become a Christian. But listen to this. The the defeated or the dethroned enemy is not destroyed. The, The dethroned enemy, he simply He he, he kind of moves into the jungle where it's safe, right? He retreats into the jungle where he can wage now this guerrilla warfare, where, where he can launch these brutal attacks, set up these pockets of resistance all around the territory to wage war on you. This is the idea of a Christian. I'm going to think about how this plays out. Here's what this means as a Christian. Sin, the flesh has been dethroned, but it's not destroyed. I'm going to think about it this way. Although sin no longer reigns in you, it still remains in you. You see the picture? This, this is the life of a Christian. Although, although sin no longer reigns, it still remains. There's pockets of resistance all in your heart that wage war against God and what he wants for you. That wages wars against these new desires that God's given you. This is the Christian life. This is it. This is the conflict. Okay, now this is you see this all throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of places. This is why in Galatians 5.17, listen to these words in Galatians 5. For the desires of the flesh are against, are at war with the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to one another. Your translation may say at war with, I mean, they are in a battle against one another. And look at the last phrase in that to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is the battle. It's on a desire level. What do you want in life? That's the battle of the flesh. Okay. This is where in Romans seven, Paul articulates it again in Romans seven. Here's what he says in Romans seven, 23 and 20, uh, 22 and 23. He says, for I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. Here's what he's saying. God has become the occupying ruler. This is the dominant want, the dominant desire. But listen to what he says in verse 23. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the the law of sin that dwells in my members. And this is where he goes on to say that the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't. This is the war. You've got pockets of resistance still in your heart, the flesh, the remaining remnants of sin that are waging war against you, right? This is where in James chapter four, same kind of an idea. He says, why is it that you fight and quarrel among yourselves? I mean, think about this. Why is it that there are people probably in your life that right now you are at war with? Why is that? Here's James' answer in James 4. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is the issue. So front one of the battle is internal. It's not external. Front one in the battle is that you've got pockets of resistance in your heart, waging war on your desire for God. So let me ask you some questions here. Men in the room, all the men, look, take a look up here. Do you desire God? Because you know what I find with most guys is they really don't. See, this is where the war is. The, the war is not in what you're doing. The war is not in, okay, so I came to church, brought my Bible. I didn't read it. Every I mean, the war is not what you're doing. The war is in what, what you're desiring. The war is, do I treasure Jesus? That's the war. And you've got these pockets of sin that are waging war against that desire. So let me ask you, what's winning inside of you? Do you desire God? Men, do you desire to be holy, to know God, to, to live with God, to walk with God? Do you desire that? See, this is the battle. I mean, this is, where, this is the first front. Ladies, do you desire God? I mean, do you want God? I mean, if I'm just to ask the question, what do you want most in life? You know how few people answer that with God? I mean, even people in this context, in churches just like this, I mean, this is the battle, not in what you're doing, but in what you're desiring. The flesh sets up this pockets of resistance that wage war into this treasuring and and moving after and desiring God. Okay, so this is the flesh. This is this is round one. This is front one. Okay, now it moves to an external issue. Okay, this is the war. Or this is the, the world. So front two is the world. Okay, so th- this is the outward issue. So, so front one, flesh, internal. Front two, the world, external. Okay, so let's work towards the definition here. When, when you think of the world in the scriptures, it could be one of several different things. A lot of times it's mentioned in a positive way. So it will be used to describe things like creation. So God created these things, and they're good, right? I mean, so he created um, the moon, the stars, monkeys, spiders, snakes, grass. I mean, he, all, he created all these things, and they're good. Okay, so th- this could be one way just to describe creation, the universe. Okay, it also may be used to describe people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, this idea of people, right? So, so it, it's used in positive ways like that. But there's sometimes that it's used in a negative light. So in in 1 John 2.15, John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. So it's also used in this way. Okay, now when it's used in this negative sense, here's what it means. It means the collective godlessness of a culture. That's the world, right? Okay, it's the collective godlessness. So when you, okay, think about it this way. People are born with, with flesh as the reigning ruler. Right? Okay, so so when you get a group of people with flesh as the reigning ruler, you, you gather them in villages. You put them in towns. You, you gather them in cities. Then they create a culture, right, with deformed desires. Okay, so when you think about the collective culture of a group of people that is anti-God, against God, this is what the world is In the Bible, when it's used in a negative sense, it is this collective godlessness. So let me give you a definition here that you can work with. The world is the prevailing worldviews and values of a culture that promote a pattern of life that is contrary to the will of God. You you see that? That it's the prevailing way the culture thinks about life and what it values that promotes a pattern of life that is contrary to what God would want. That that is de-goded God out of that. This is the world. Okay, now you see this in Ephesians 6:12, it talks about this present darkness, and you see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, look back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. What are we following? We're following the course of this world, right? Okay, so think about this. When you're born, you've got these deformed desires. Okay, so you've got these desires that would lead you contrary to God, away from God. Even when you're a Christian, you've got this remnant in you, these pockets of resistance that wage war on godly desires. Okay, now this is, this is how the world plays into this now. The world comes in and reinforces. The, the world comes in and, and, and it's like the supply chain in the army, right? It, it supplies and feeds these pockets of resistance, th- these deformed desires in you. This is what the world does. It's this collective godlessness okay, that, that reinforces, that cements the flesh in us. okay. So, so this is the idea of the world. So if you want to think about maybe like sexual sin. So let, let's say that you've got lust as is your issue. okay. This is the desire that has gone wrong in you, that's been deformed in you. okay. So, so lust essentially, um, it, it takes a, a woman away from being a person or a man away from being a person and turns them into an object. Then the world comes along and just bombards with millions of images to reinforce people are objects to be exploited, not people to be loved. So the world comes in and just reinforces and feeds these desires, right? Okay, now let's take this a step further. Okay, that's what the world is. Now think about what worldliness is. Worldliness is when you and I adopt the prevailing worldviews the prevailing values of a culture that promote a pattern of life that is contrary to God. That's worldliness. Okay, now think about this. It's just a subtle scheme to push God out of your life. That's worldliness. Just a subtle scheme to make you think, that, okay, so, it, I mean, it, it's not even trying to say don't believe in God. It's just a subtle scheme to try to relegate God to, that's nine to noon on Sunday. That's what that is. Now, Monday, that's a different story. When I think about work, when I think about finances, when I think about parenting, when I think about how to respond to that guy that's a jerk, when I think about that guy that's wrong me, how I'm going to get him. I mean, when when we think about all these other issues, we de-god God God, from those situations. This is what the world does. It helps us adopt. It presses in and pulls us. So we adopt these prevailing values and worldviews that promote a life contrary to the will of God. Okay, you see the world here? This is what the world is, what it does. This is what worldliness is. Worldliness is when the ways of the world seem more normal to you than the ways of God. When how the world thinks about life is more normal to you than how God thinks about life. This is worldliness. Here's the great thing about the gospel. The gospel comes in and it defies worldliness. When you become a Christian, here's what happens. Okay, now, now remember Ephesians chapter 2. You're following the course of the world. This is pre-Christ. But, but when God saves you, Ephesians 2 verse 4 happens. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves you, makes you alive. It is as if God is a lightning beam that comes and breaks you out of the grip of the world. And he sets up a new prevailing pattern a new worldview, there becomes a new normal. I mean, think about how abnormal the claims of Christ are in your life. Up becomes down, down becomes up, right? He commands us not only to love those who love us, but to love, listen to this, love your enemies. That's the new normal in the Bible. He he calls us to forgive, not just once, twice, three times, 70 times seven, a whole lot of times, right? He he says, if you want your life, then you've got to give up your life. If you if you want to follow me, then, then take up your cross. There is a new normal with the Bible. Okay, now think about how this plays out. The gospel defies, it sets up a new worldview, a new prevailing pattern of what is normal in you. Okay, now think about how this plays out in John um, chapter 17. This is Jesus praying to God, like to the Father, in this high priestly prayer where, where he prays this. He's just recognized that God, the Father, has rescued these people out of the world. But in John 17, verse 15, he says, okay, but I'm not praying, God the Father, I'm not praying that you would take these people that you've rescued, that you've loosened the grips of the world. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. I'm I'm praying that you would protect them as they stay in the world. So here's what that implies. The world is waging a war on you. That's what it implies. That there is an outer war going on, an outer front, where it is trying to get you to a Stop the prevailing worldview and values. Okay, now this is where C. J. Mahaney—he wrote a book on worldliness. I'd recommend it. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there. You need to probably grab that one. But let me tell you one thing. He says in this one quote, he says, "He says today the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. That is the greatest threat." That when you think about your life, your greatest threat is not somebody killing you tomorrow. Your greatest threat is that you would begin to adopt the prevailing patterns and worldviews, the values of our culture that run anti-God. This this is your greatest enemy. I mean, this is one of the most seductive things in your life. Okay, now, a sociologist, I think he makes an interesting observation when he's talking about missionaries that have gone, like, gone on to the foreign mission field. And this is what he, he says um, f- about these missionaries. He says, every missionary knows the experience of culture shock, either when he arrives at a foreign culture or return home. So here's what he's saying. When you leave America and you go to India and you realize, dang, dogs are not just pant- or pets. I mean, they eat those things, right? I mean, cats are not just something you're, they eat that, right? I mean, when you start to realize that just their customs, the way they do things, the things they eat, the things they say, I mean, just how they do normal tasks are totally different than how you do them. Okay. He's talking about, there's a culture shock that happens. I can't eat a dog, right? I mean, I can't do that. Okay. This is the shock. Okay. Then he goes on to say this missionaries also know that after a while, the shock of culture goes away. Every time the missionary, or over time the missionary gradually settles into the assumptions and patterns of behavior of the culture around him. He, he just kind of settles in. And then he says this, the shock eventually gives way to submission. You seeing that? Okay, now think about how this relates to a Christian. Okay, so, so God saves you. He sets up a new prevailing worldview, a new way of seeing life. And then all of a sudden you, you look around and think the culture is weird. I'm not the weird one. They're the weird one. I'm not the abnormal one. They're the abnormal one. All right. So so you get this view and then you start living. Then you start going to work. Then you wake up and your wife is ticked at you. I mean, then you wake up and, and your son has punched his brother, right? I mean, you just, life happens. And all of a sudden, what used to be abnormal, you've now settled in and become submissive to it. Now this what used to be abnormal has become normal to you. And look at me right here. And here's the truth for most of us in this room. It's happened without us even knowing it. That the way we think about the world, is ju- or the way we think about life, is just like culture's way. The the way you see food, money, drink, sex, all of these things that make up life look just like the world. This is the issue. This is the war that that rages with worldliness. Okay, now listen to this statement. It is impossible to live a fruitful Christian life. Now look at me here. It's impossible to live fruitful for God without culture shock. It's impossible. You can't live well for God and be settled into culture. You can only live well for God when there has been culture shock that is maintained over the long run. So let me ask you the question. Have you settled into the world? Is the way you think about the world, or the way you think about life, is it more normal to you than the way God views life? Now look at me here. Is the way you think about parenting? Does it look more like the world than like God sees it? The way you think about your finances, the way you think about your future, the way you think about your time, the way you think about your retirement, the way you think about your job, the way you think about your marriage, the way you think about your kids, does it look more like the world or does it look more like God? This is the issue with worldliness. This is the war that's raging with this. So daddies, have you settled in has culture shock kind of worn off? Has normal become the prevailing worldviews and values of the world? Moms in the room. Has the culture shock worn off? I think for a lot of us, it has. I think for a lot of us, we've been seduced into a worldly way of thinking, right? So, so this is the out, like external war. This is the outer war, outer front that is waging war on us. Okay, then you've got the third front. You see it in Ephesians chapter 2, where where it says that that we're following the the prince of the ruler of the air. Like, right? We're following the devil. Okay, so this is the third front. It's upward. Okay, so so we've got this battle that's raging between Satan and us. The devil is waging war on us. We filled in a lot of the blanks last week. I'll just make a couple of comments on this. That, That Satan is bent on defaming God and destroying the people of God. He plots and plans and schemes right? To, to those ends. Okay. This is Satan in the scriptures. Okay. Now I think it's interesting to think about imagery that, that the scriptures use of Satan, where first Peter chapter five is going to say this about Satan, that he's a roaring lion. Okay. Now think about that imagery. This is a full frontal. Hey, I'm bigger than you. I'm tougher than you. So I'm just going to eat you. Right? I mean, this is the imagery going on here. This is, I'm knocking on your front door. I'm going to bust down your front door and I'm going to shoot you. This is that imagery. Guns are blazing. Okay, now now think about this though. In 2 Corinthians 11, it says he masquerades as an angel of light. And his servants, they look like servants of righteousness. That's the other picture. Okay, this is Satan in stealth mode, right? This is, I'm going to go in kind of through the garage door. I'm going to pick the lock and I'm going to put a silencer on the gun and I'm going to come shoot you while you're in bed. Okay, this, this is the other imagery going on. Okay, now th- I think it's just interesting to kind of think about in our culture what Satan kind of appears as. And you know what? I think the predominant way he comes at us and arranges and plots and schemes for us is as, you know, by the second one, by masquerading as an angel of light. I think this is how he does it. He, he uses the world and he uses the flesh and he's very content with standing behind those two where when you look at the battle, you see those two. And all the time, he is in the shadows. So I think he's real content with saying, hey, you can intellectually believe in me, but you, just go ahead and live life like I really don't exist, right? So go ahead and live life that way. I think he's real content in staying in, in the shadows. Okay, so here's what I want to do now. I want to wrap these things together and show you how they work. How they work in a concerted effort um, to, to plot the scheme to work for your destruction. Okay, so you've got a war on three fronts. Okay, this is the issue. You got three, you got three fronts, three wars going on. Okay, now Thomas Brooks, I think does a real he's really helpful in in trying to give imagery that describes these three fronts. Okay, he used he uses this fish kind of this angler fishing type analogy. And he, he says this about these three things that the flesh is the hook. Okay, so the flesh is the hook. Your desires that run contrary to the will of God, look at me here. They make you catchable. You get that? So, so your desires that run contrary to God are deformed and distorted. These pockets of resistance in you make you a catchable fish. They make you a catchable thing, a catchable person. OK, now think about the world now. The world comes in, and it's the bait. So so the world gives opportunities for your flesh to show themselves. That They give your flesh opportunity to live out their desires. The world becomes the opportunity. It becomes the bait. It becomes the way you express these things. Okay, now I want you to think about how Satan stands behind these things. He says that Satan, it looks like this master angler, this master fisherman who skillfully takes your hook, of the flesh and puts the appropriate bait on it that you'll bite. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so think about how this works. Master angler, Satan. And listen, he's got bigger fish than you on his wall, I'll promise you, right? I mean, if I hear of another pastor um, that, that falls to sexual sin, to embezzlement, it just makes me want to sit down and cry. And so Satan takes this hook, and listen, he doesn't care what hook you offer him. If you want to offer him the hook of entitlement, he'll take it. If you want to offer him the hook of lust, he'll take it. If you want to offer him the hook of greed, he'll take it. If you want to offer him the hook of fear of man, he'll take it. If you want to offer him the hook of this sucking desire for security, he'll take it. Whatever hook you offer, he is skillful. He'll take your hook, he doesn't care which one it is. Then he skillfully places the bait on it. Now think about the function of bait. Okay, like bait covers the hook, right? Thomas uh, Brooks, he, he makes this comment in here on the devices of Satan, that this is the way Satan works. He, he presents the bait and covers the hook. That he makes sin appear like it's innocent. He makes sin appear like you can have it without consequences. He makes sin appear like you can nibble on it and be Okay. So, so the, the bait hides the hook and now what's the second function of bait? Bait is put on your hook to trigger a strike. So Satan is impartial to bait. He'll take whatever bait you want to bite and he'll put it on the hook. I mean, if you're, okay, men in the room, if, if your hook is, I, I want a wife that will give me a little respect and honor. If, if that's your hook, then, then Satan is just fine with placing a little worldly bait with a secretary in your office on that hook that will show you all the honor, all the respect you want. He's just fine with that. I mean, if, if you want, if maybe you're a lady in here and your hook is, now I want, I want a man who will show me some right affection. Then listen, he'll put that bait there. He'll give you that exact thing. He doesn't care what bait it is. He'll take whatever hook you give him and whatever your propensity is to bite, he will bait your hook with that thing. This is Satan. This is how he works. He's a skillful angler. And then when you start to nibble and you eventually bite, he sets the hook and he begins to reel in your family. Begins to reel in your marriage. Begins to reel in your kids. Begins to reel in your life. Takes it to the taxidermy. Puts it on his wall. This is the scheme. This is how it works. The world, the flesh, the devil. This is the concerted effort for for your demise to destroy the people of God. So let me give you three implications and we're done. Implication number one. Be desperate in the way you deal with sin, as it relates to the flesh, these internal pockets of resistance. Be desperate in how you deal with these things. Okay, now think about Ephesians six twelve. I think this is really interesting that he, Paul uses mixed imagery. You've got a wrestler and you've got a soldier. Now I don't typically think of soldiers as wrestlers, right? I don't. I don't typically. I think of a soldier as I've got a gun. You've got a gun. Let's do this, right? Okay, this is like, let's lob some artillery. This is soldier to me, right? But let me tell you the soldier that's also a wrestler. It's the soldier that's desperate. It's the soldier that that the enemy is no longer over there, but he's right here. The the enemy is no longer shootable. He's only stabbable. I mean, the enemy is no longer there. He is at the front door with me. And it's either I win or he wins. It's either I live or he lives. And I am totally, I'm baffled by how many of us, me included at times, how we think that an enemy at our door, that we can coexist there. How we think this pocket of resistance in us, that we can kind of do the God thing over here, but we can keep this in a back bedroom locked up. It doesn't work that way. You can't just lock up a terrorist in your house. It it doesn't work like that. You've got to kill them, right? I mean, this is the idea. This is why in in Romans 8, it says this, Romans 8, 13, paraphrase. You're either going to kill sin in you or it's going to kill you. Those are the options. So desperate soldiers wrestle and you need to be wrestling. You need to be actively engaged, battling these pockets of resistance. So let me just ask the men in the room, are you battling these things? Now, are you nibbling on this bait as if it won't cost you something, right? I mean, are you nibbling on these things as if there's no effects to that? Or are you going to war against these things? Now, are you serious about these things? Now, are you treating sin like something you can just kind of put in the closet over here as if you can coexist with it? Or are you going to war trying to kill those things in your life? Now, I'm just, it it breaks my heart to watch people nibble, right? It doesn't work to nibble. You get caught when you nibble. So be desperate in the way that you're dealing with sin. Second thing is be diligent with the disciplines. As it relates to the world, be diligent in the disciplines. 150 years ago, Charles Spurge, I think, just made an interesting insight into the church. The church is bigger, looks more beautiful than it ever has, but has less influence than it ever has. Now, why is that? His response? Because the world is in the church. Because the church looks just like the world. I mean, we've got this intellectual belief, but the, the ways we, we live and the thing, how we think, how we make decisions, we, we've adopted the posture of the world. We, we've no longer re, we remained in this idea of a uh, shock to culture. And so let me ask y'all, I mean, are the ways you think about life, does it look more like the world than it does the Bible? The only way you'll maintain culture shock is to keep your mind saturated with and filled with, soaked with the Bible. That's it. There's no other way. You've got to keep your mind soaked by. There's a thousand images that pull and force and finagle and push their way into your mind. The only way you can maintain culture shot. be diligent in the disciplines. Daddy, are you opening up your Bible and reading? Mom's. I mean, is this this a habit in your life? If these things are not habits, guarantee you, you're thinking more like the world than like God. We've got to be diligent in the disciplines. And last thing, is you've got to be determined to keep the armor on. As it relates to Satan, we've got to make sure that the armor is on, that we've set up resistance, and that we're standing. Come back next week. That's where we're going. Let's pray. So, God, I just, I just want to finish today just by praying for brothers and sisters in this room that as it relates to the flesh, they're nibbling. And Satan is about to set the hook, to, to bear the hook and start reeling. And God, I, I pray for them. God, I pray for me. God, that we would be desperate in how we deal with sin. That there would be a desperation about us in that. That that there would be something in our heart that screams, I can't coexist with this. So God, I pray for that. I pray that, that you would awaken that in us before it's too late, before the costs are so severe. God, I pray for the daddies in this room that are nibbling with affairs and nibbling with sin and nibble, nibbling in all God, pray for them. Oh God, will you be gracious to us? And God, as it relates to the world, God, I pray that we would be people who are soaking soaking our minds, saturating our minds in the Scriptures so, so that we can maintain a shock the culture. God, help us. Oh, God, help us in that. Help us in that.